Welcome to The Culture Pop, the show that celebrates the music, the culture, and the people of the world. And if you're listening to me today on a Sunday afternoon for on Radio Sangam 107.9 FM, do bear in mind that you'll be able to see the full video version of this interview um, on my YouTube channel, which is Martin Morrison Media. I'm sure that the URL will be posted and possibly the video on the Radio Sangam Facebook page. Um, today, I've got an amazing guest for you. His name is Simon Keegan. Um, given that this is the culture part and we're studying culture and different people's lives, Simon's got it all. These days, he's the business editor of Business Insider in the Northwest. He's also uh, an expert historian and practitioner of karate and Tai Chi and a whole range of things. And he's an expert, I would even go so far as to say a world-class expert, on the, um, I don't want to say legend anymore, because he believes that this really exists, the, the legend of King Arthur, believe it or not. Um, for those of you who don't know, I've launched another show called Martin Explores, which involves 30-minute interviews where I explore things like Martin Explores Karate, Martin Explores Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and in Simon's case, there'll be an episode called Martin Explores King Arthur, for those who are more interested in that. But before we go any further, let me bring the man himself on air. Simon, how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you, Martin. It's good to see you. Did I big you up enough there? Because I, I'm sure I probably forgot other things. I think you more than big me up enough. I was sat listening to that thinking, this sounds like a great guest. I wonder who he's bringing on. Oh, well, I think you're fantastic. I'm looking forward to the interview. And uh, with you being a journalist as well, it's great to know that um, I know that you've thought about how you can lay out your story today, which is fantastic as well. So um, as you know, Simon, um, I think that a lot of stuff starts in childhood. In childhood, we sometimes miss those aspects, or parents and adults miss those aspects that suggest that somebody is going to end up being on TV or a journalist or whatever. And at the same time, sometimes we get programmed into the wrong direction. So I always like to start with childhood. I think that's, that's, that's where the roots are, anybody's life. So let's go back to yours. Tell me where it all began. Uh, yeah, I was, um, I was born in Liverpool in 1979. Um, I think if, with a few people uh, that do martial arts, particularly martial arts instructors, and particularly people who do jobs like I do, where you know, you, you're on stage and we do awards dinners and so on, um, you, you assume that they're nat naturally extroverted. Um, and I, I never was. I was a very uh, quiet child. Um, I, I mean, you know, my, my dad is a, was always a confident guy. I always had strong, confident uh, men in my family. But I was, I was pretty quiet. I was pretty timid. Um, but I did, uh, I know we're going to talk about my martial arts. Um, I always had that interest in martial arts when I, when, when, from being tiny. I mean, even, you know, when, when I was a, a kind of toddler, I used to sit watching, you know, do you remember Monkey? I used to love those, you know, Monkey whizzing around on his cloud and everything. I used to watch all those with my dad. 
Um, and I, and I, there's just something that, that grabbed me about it. And then I think probably the, um, the thing that really made me interested in uh, Japanese martial arts, it's a bit of a roundabout way, was uh, the, movie, the movie Highlander. Oh, yeah. Uh, because obviously, you know, used, they used a Japanese sword in it, and they, I became really interested in samurai swords and so on. Um, and I suppose there was a lot, of, a lot of things around at that time of that nature. Um, it was kind of after the big Bruce Lee boot, but there was, there was ninjas and there was, um, I suppose Star Wars, you could say, is kind of like a, a, a samurai mythology, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as I, as I became more interested in this, you know, I, it became apparent to me that quite a few guys in my family had done martial arts. Um, so on my on my dad's side, my my dad himself had done martial arts. He'd um, he'd done jujitsu, you know, at school, uh, some karate. Uh, his twin brother, my uncle Paul, had done jujitsu. He did karate. He had Japanese swords. And then on my on my mum's side, my granddad. Um, He'd, he'd boxed, he'd been in the army in World War II. His brother, my great-uncle Billy, was the real kind of martial arts guy of the family. He had, um, he had studied jiu-jitsu uh, around the time of the Second World War, and he was a very early black belt. He trained in two of the country's first jiu-jitsu schools. So I, I always had this, this kind of influence, and, you know, I would... My dad would, as most sons and, and dads that have a good relationship with each other do, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd kind of fight and, and wrestle and he'd show me jiu-jitsu um, techniques and conditioning. I used to have punch bags up in my dad's garage and so on. And then, you know, in the summer holidays, I'd be, I'd be at my grandparents and my granddad would, would show me how to box and so on. So all the way through my family, even as quite a, a timid sort of, child i was had that interest in martial arts um but it was like a it, it was almost like a personal hobby rather than something i did socially mm -hmm. i didn't i didn't belong to a martial arts club or anything it was something it was something that was quite personal to me um another guy my my dad uh, my dad worked in shipping and so he got he used to travel the world quite a lot so my dad uh, went over to china when i was about eight and um, you know, at one point we nearly emigrated to China and my dad and his best friend were, were out there working for quite some time. And my dad's friend, who I call my uncle John, he was another, he was the Schultzkamp black belt in the, in the 60s and 70s. So, so you know, I, I kind of learned what Schultzkamp was from him. And so I just, from, you know, from my dad, my uncle John, my uncle Paul, my great uncle Billy, I just had these, this kind of, I suppose this sense of um, jiu-jitsu, karate, a little bit of the culture from my dad having lived and worked in China. And I just loved it. I, I loved all of that Eastern stuff, the foods, the, um, the, the kind of, you know, the uniforms, the ninjas, <laughs> all, all that sort of thing. And I, it was just something that I really, I really loved as a, as a child, you know? Okay. Um, that's a, fascinating story and it's uh, given rise to some other questions that i think i'll i'll hit you with um after your first song so what's your first song gonna be and why well i well i told you a minute ago that the, the film i loved uh, when i was a kid and i still love to this day 
is Highlander. So I, I want to pick a song off of that. So I'm going to pick uh, It's a Kind of Magic. So because Queen. it's a recorded show, I don't know if they've just played It's a Kind of Magic by, by Queen or, or whether there's been a stack of adverts. Um, but my <laughs> guest today my guest today is Simon Keegan, who's been talking about how his love of martial arts and passion for martial arts came from being a child. Um, it seems as though really you were destined for martial arts, Simon. You said you weren't going to a club, but it, it sounds as though the family Keegan was a club in itself. Um, and your father, you said your father was traveling around the world and you almost went to China. Is that where the Tai Chi influences came in? Because I'm sure that your dad knows Tai Chi, doesn't he? And, and yeah, your dad teaches Tai Chi. Does yeah. he speak Chinese um, as well? Um, I think he, he probably, um, you know, he, he knows obviously the names of the Tai Chi techniques in, in Mandarin. And I'm sure when he was working out there, he, um, he certainly knew certain words that were needed in business, but uh, he doesn't speak it fluently as far as I know. But okay. if he did, he probably, he's the kind of guy, he's a bit like Yoda, you know, you, he, doesn't ask, he doesn't tell you something unless you ask, you know. <laughs> he could speak Chinese for all I know. But it sounds as though all these different influences, one, you would have been hearing some Chinese from him when he was teaching you Tai Chi. You would have been hearing Japanese when he was speaking um, teaching you Jiu-Jitsu. And then you are learning these different forms and cultural norms in a way. Um, what sort of effect do you think that had on you as a person? I mean, did it boost your confidence, for example? No. No, that definitely not my confidence. Um, up until I was about 16, I was a very quiet, shy child. I wasn't very good in school. Um, not, I wasn't naughty, I just wasn't very academic. Um, I, I think uh, there was just little things, you know, in terms of the culture, you know, where it, I had uh, my uncle John was married to a Chinese lady, so you know when we all sat around the table at the walk, um, little things that you you would do, the way you would tap on the table to thank someone for pouring you the tea, you know, just little cultural things like that, really more than anything. Um, and I, I think um, you know, I, I certainly went to a few clubs when I was younger, but none that grabbed me. And it was only um, when I was uh, sixteen that. A friend of mine, my, my best friend, started going to a martial arts club and he, he, he roped me along to go, to go into this club. And, you know, as I said, I was being quite a shy kid. And I went to this club, but something about it grabbed me. And honestly, the, the, the change in me, it was like um, that real... I think that the, the, the first few months of training at that club was the biggest, most dramatic change I've ever had in my life. You know, I kind of almost overnight became confident, became sure of myself, and and I think from that it was when I was um, it was when I was sixteen. So it was when I started college that um, enabled me then to have an idea of what I wanted to do for a career as well. So it, it all came from that really. If you can put your finger on it, though, what 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 was the mechanism? Um, what what actually took place at that club that that brought about the change so, was it a person was it a an incident? So the, yeah, I think there's a mixture of things. The instructor there was a guy called Steve Buller, who was um, 
a really, really charismatic guy. Um, and, and he was one of those sorts of people that, you know, if there was 10 people sat around, they'd all be listening to his stories. You know, one of those sorts of um, people that you're just drawn to the magnetism. He always had a big smile on his face that would just made you want to be around him, made you want to listen to him. And, and when he did martial arts, he just, um, you know, because he, he wasn't physically imposing either. He was about, you know, five foot something and looked about nine stone soaking wet. So it, it wasn't like he was a big kind of giant of a man. But when he did his, his techniques, there was just that crisp snap of that white karate suit as he, as he did the techniques. And, you, you know, I couldn't take my eyes off him. And... I was just kind of captivated by it. And I think if you if you, you start to like something, you become better at it. And because I'd never really been good at any team games, I'd never been good at football or rugby, I, I think I became good at karate because I, um, I, I didn't need to rely on anybody or I didn't need to um, have a, a, a sort of relationship with anybody in order to do it it's about your own self-expression and so as he actually would come around the class and he was like good you know that move you did that well you did that good it gave me confidence and then when I was um, I was I was kind of um, you know 16 year old yellow belt I went in for a competition and I just did it for the experience and I won I won the whole tournament you know, against a, I don't know, a brown belt or a black belt in the, in the final. And then, of course, the penny dropped then of, I think I've finally found something that I'm good at, you know, for the, for the kind of first time in my life. And then when you find something that you're good at, you put all your, your effort into it, don't you? You know? Yeah. Um, so, so I think from that, and then I just think if you can, um, for people listening who don't know what kata is, we have something in karate called a kata, which is like a solo routine of techniques. You know, if you can stand in front of 20 strangers looking a bit silly doing all sorts of kicks and punches and shouts, if you And so I really think that the karate gave me the confidence then to do the things to to go for job interviews and 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 so on i think yes yeah, sorry pursue what i wanted to do as a career i think uh, i can relate with a lot of that um one of the things i can relate with for example is um i mean in your case you were quite shy and introverted by the sounds of it. In my case, um, I had a different set of circumstances, terrible relationship with my father, abuse at home and the rest of it. But either way, whether it's shy and introverted or whether it's somebody being abused, you have the same problem with things like football or cricket or team-based games. There's a barrier because of maybe your lack yeah. of confidence about interacting with other people and whether or not you're going to be given a chance on the team even. Whereas when it comes yeah. to things like martial arts, or in my case, chess, I love chess, I love music and things like that, it really is a case of you and what you can bring to the table. And the team is you, yourself and you, which is, which is wonderful. Yeah. I'm 
absolutely and I, I also think there's an aspect of it of you you know you don't know without wanting to sound dramatic about it you you, you don't know what you can do until you have to do it so it, it from a martial arts point of view you know my sensei used to give us boxing gloves and put us in the ring and say right go and then you know, when you're in the corner and you've got some big black belt battering you in the face, you've got no choice. You, you have to pick up your gloves and fight back. And, and that was something that, you, you know, from, from doing martial arts as a kid, where I'm doing it in that safe environment of, you know, my dad just throwing, showing me a throw or, or showing me how to use a, you know, sword or whatever. Being in that pressure situation where it's, it's kind of sink or swim, that's when you start understanding that you can do things that you maybe didn't think you could do a little bit and i think that's a metaphor for life isn't it mm. or, or as the life coaches talk about you know going into out of your comfort zone where the growth happens you get a Absolutely. lot of that so before i delve deeper, um give me another song and a reason why okay um I'm just going to pick this song because this was the, um, I, I got into music quite late, but the, but the one, well, apart from Queen, who, who hopefully we played earlier, the one band I always liked as a kid was the Rolling Stones. And uh, this song was the, the one that I, I heard it on a TV show again. It was, a, it was a TV show about the Vietnam War called Tory Duty. And the tune is Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. And I just love it. Welcome back to the Culture Pod, the show that celebrates the music, the culture and the people of the world. And if you've just joined us, it is a pre-recorded show, so no calling in or texting in or WhatsApping. Um, today's guest is Simon Keegan, who's been explaining... Um, how his life unfolded, starting with being quite a shy, introverted child who was fortunate enough to be exposed to a variety of martial arts influences from his father and his uncles and his granddad. And he's got to a point where he had gone to a martial arts club to do jujitsu around the age of 16, I think he said. And that really changed his life around because that was the point when he realised that one, he was actually good at something and he should invest his time into it. But something about the self-reliance, the fact that it was down to him and him alone to progress, resonated with him. And before you knew it, he was winning competitions and he was feeling really confident. So, Simon Keegan, thanks very much again for coming on the show. I've got Thank another you. question for you, because it was when you were talking yeah. to me about your instructor, jiu-jitsu you said he was five foot summer i think you're six foot plus aren't you i never met you in person yeah i'm a i'm, a, I'm about six one i think steve is about five six or something like that okay so you know i've got a term for this um other than charismatic when you were talking about the fact that he could fill a room with his presence and as soon as he spoke mm. everybody was was looking in and and i think that what i would say is he was five foot six externally but six foot six internally, his personality was 100%. six foot six. Now, 100%. for those for those who are listening who don't know martial arts, something that we were talking about in the Martin Explores interview the other day, you have two 
two approaches, if you like. You've got the internal approach, which is where you're developing from the inside out, spiritual growth. And literally, you're working your inner spine, strengthening your spine and outwards. And then you've got the external martial arts, where it's all about how hard you can punch and kick or be hit. And you've done both. And what I was going to say to you is that when you saw this instructor and you saw his inner strength coming out as a shy child, an introverted child, you thought, I want some of that. Is that what happened? I want yeah, some of that. Yeah, How's I mean, he developed I, that power? Yeah, I mean, I never thought that I would be um, like him because, um, you know, at, at the time, as me being a kind of quiet 16 year old kid and he was um you know not my dad's age he's he's only um i think he's 13 years older than me or 12 years older than me so he was kind of like more like a big brother type um role but you know i i, I looked at him and it was like watching bruce lee you know when you watch bruce lee for the first time mm -hmm. and you've never quite seen anybody move like that You've not, never quite seen anybody talk like that. You know, he just had, uh, to me at the time, you know, it just, it was magic watching him. Um, but he just had a nice, um, he had a nice way about him. You know, we, um, we went to McDonald's, you know, he used to tell everybody, make sure you take the tray back at the end. You know, he would do that. You know, if he was, I went to watch him fight in the ring and he always, you know, he always sat on the ropes to let his opponent climb in. You know, he was he was just a very um, polite, gentle, courteous guy. Um, and I like a big brother to me. And then, you know, after after a few years, after maybe two or three years of training with him, and I should say that um, his style was called the Bushido Academy. And we call, he called it Bushido Freestyle. And he taught a mixture of karate, judo, aikido, kabudo, the you know, every Japanese martial art under the sun was included in that system one way or another. Um, you know, and he, he um, said to me one day that, you know, you're one of the students who will carry this on after I'm, after I'm gone, you know. Um, and, and then when I, was, um, when I was 20 and I took my black belt grading with him, um, he gave me, he stamped my license book, you know, and you get the certificate and everything. And I'm kind of waiting for the belt, you know. I said, Sensei, um, you know, do, do I buy a belt or, or what? And then and he, he took his belt off and gave it to me. Wow. You know, so um, that was, that was really something, that was really something special, you know. Oh yeah, we, I've never had that happen before. That, that's beautiful, Simon. Because it, in a way, you know, you talked about stepping into the shoes of the master. Or, you know, I think somebody once told me sensei means one who has gone before. You, you, you can't step any more into someone's footsteps than wearing their actual belt, can you? Amazing compliment. Right, right. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think ar around that time, uh, around the time I um, got my black, so I got my black belt in '99. Um, at that point, 
that year I think it was I started doing Tai Chi formally as well in a class and that was um, something that again opened my eyes to the more um, you know that obviously karate uh, was developed on Okinawa further developed in Japan but it's got Chinese influences as we talk about in our karate uh, chat so it was interesting you know to that time um, I'd started work as well as um, as a journalist so I suppose as I was kind of um, growing as a, as a martial artist and as a as a black belt I was also kind of forging a career for myself a little bit as well um, it's a it's, it's going to be a, a little strange um, ping-pong between martial arts and career I think this chat um, but I thought I might talk a little bit about how I got into uh, becoming a journalist as well. I, I like so, that though, to be honest with you. I, I, what I like to see, the way, the way somebody grows, the way I see it is you have the, um, the physical side, which is the activities they took part in, their hobbies and their development that way. And then you have the intellectual side, which is maybe the studying and the several decisions of where they think they ought to go in life. And then you yeah, have the yeah. spiritual development and the spiritual development, I think, is, is, is bringing your focused cerebral development and physical development in line with where your heart wants you to go, I think. So it's, it's those three things. Um, I think what I'm going to do is ask you for another song. And then after that, we're going to look at how your um, academic look at your academic life and what you studied at school once you okay. became more focused. So what's your next song? Um, I'm going to pick a song that I started, um, I started liking when I was at college. Um, and again, it's another oldie, um, but I'm going to go for All the Young Dudes by Motley Hoople. Originally uh, written by David Bowie, but I think the version most people know is by Motley Hoople. And I just, uh, I just love this song. Great piece of 1970s glam rock. Simon Keegan, welcome back to The Culture Pot. Thank you again for coming on to the show. Um, so you said that in earlier life, you weren't particularly academic, which really surprised me, because the one thing I always think of with you, you know, because I know that you are the editor of Business Insider and because you're one of the few people on Facebook that can write an update that makes sense and is well written um, and, and the fact you've written books I'm always surprised I always expected you to be a bit of a bookworm when you were younger but either way you've explained to us that once you um, were awakened if you like at the jiu-jitsu class and you became more confident and more focused it all came together so what did you focus on at school as a 16, 17, 18 year old? Tell us how your academic life unfolded. So, yeah, so um, I, I liked drawing, I liked um, sketching. I was always, I was quite good at drawing as a child. Um, so I, I liked that. And so I, I think maybe up until I was about 14, I always thought I was going to be an artist. Um, I was okay at it. It wasn't amazing, but I think, you know, I was above average. Um, and then I think when I was about, maybe when I was about 14, our geography teacher 
gave us a project. We were learning about volcanoes and earthquakes at the time. And he said as the homework, we had to make a newspaper front page about, um, you know, a volcano erupting or something like that. And I did that and I really enjoyed it. And then I sort of got the idea that that's what I would like to do for a job. And I think that when there's a lot of that in the meat, you know, in the things that we watch, isn't there? You know, Superman works for a newspaper, Spider-Man works for a newspaper, you know. So it, it's, there's, there's a lot of sort of cultural reference points for it. Um, and, and so, and I was pretty, pretty good at English. You know, I, um, I think I got B or a C at GCSE and then at, at college I, um, I, I did English language and I did media studies and, I, you know, I was, I was okay at it. And, and so I left college um, and I wrote to all the local newspapers in, in the area. You know, I was living in Wigan, contacted the Wigan papers, Bolton, Charlie, all of those local papers. And they more or less all just said, yeah, come back when you've got some qualifications, right? Because I just had, an, uh, well, I don't think we'd even had our A-level results at that time. So I'd done A-level English language, I'd done A-level media studies, but... Uh, to be a journalist in those days, you what you did was you did a, a post, you got your degree, then you did your um, NCTJ, and then when you were working on a local paper, you then studied and did your NCE. And of course, I didn't know any of this. I just didn't know any journalists. I just thought you kind of did English and got got a job making you know washing pots on a local paper. So all of these local papers wouldn't wouldn't even let me make cups of tea for them. So I said to my dad, um, you know, what, dad, what do I do? And my dad said, well, just go and get a job. And then when you, that you prove that you're employable, then at least maybe you can go to them and say, well, look, I've been working in an office for two years. I can type, I can whatever. So I, I thought that was a good idea. And I ended up getting a job working, selling mobile phones. So this was, this was when I was 18 in 1997. So mobile phones in 1997 were by no means as common as they are now. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't every man, woman and child had a mobile phone. It was still quite a rarity. Mm-hmm. And the, the mobile phone company I was working for in Wigan, what they found is... If you, back in those days, when, you, when somebody applied for a mobile phone, they had to do a credit check. And if they passed the credit check, they could get a mobile phone. And nine out of ten people were failing their credit check. And so somebody said to my boss, what you should do is target professionals. So what he would do is he would advertise in the... Um, papers and magazines for teachers, the papers and magazines for police, people who pass credit checks and other words. So I'm quite happily selling mobile phones. And then my boss came in one day and he said to me, can you type? And I said, um, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm okay. And he said, good, good. Go down that corridor, third door on the left. Our editor needs some typing doing. And I said to him, I'm thinking, what mobile phone company has an editor? You know, and what it, what it was, he'd bought a newspaper 
because it was cheaper to print a newspaper than it was to advertise in other people's newspapers. So, you know, he could give himself kind of five full page adverts um, in these in these papers. So it was a, a paper for the there's a paper for the police service called Police Guardian and a paper for the fire service called Brigade um, Guardian. So I went in, there was this lady called Shirley, um, and she'd been ex-Bolton Evening News. She's edited the um, local metro and, and all this kind of thing. Very strict lady. And she sort of said to me, do some typing. So I'd, I used to sit there typing out press releases for her. And I, I'd, I'd kind of say to her, you know, I've always wanted to be a journalist. And she'd sort of say, all right, very good, get me a type in you. And then, um, and then one day uh, she said to me, have you, have you been anywhere on holiday this, this year or recently? And so I said, uh, you know, wherever I've been, yeah, I've been to Cornwall, you know. And she said, right, do me a 250-word travel review. It's because... You know, she, her and the rest of the staff had obviously exhausted every travel review that they could possibly write. So she said to me, you know, she didn't say it like this, she was nicer, but the gist of it was, you write it, it'll be a load of rubbish and I'll rewrite it, but at least it'll have some stuff in it. So I wrote it and she sort of said, oh, that's pretty good. You know, she, she, she kind of liked the way I'd, I'd written it and she probably had to change it a little bit less than she expected. And so she sort of, Threw something else at me then, you know, she was sort of maybe, oh, maybe do a book review for me. Yeah, do that. And then it got to the point where after a year, I was doing the front page stories. I was doing the all the back pages, the sports pages. I was doing the main, you know, I was writing 90% of the, of the paper after a year. Um, but of course, she was training me as, as I was going along. I wasn't, I wasn't a natural by any means you know she would she would tell me how to interview people how to speak what questions to ask how to, you know after after an interview you say is there anything else we need to talk about you know so she would she would give me these habits and she was quite a tough um she you know she was a good person but she was quite a tough taskmaster i would say very strict old school editor and that was the best uh, grounding you could get it's the toughest job uh, you know, in 1997, what's that, 23 years, it's the toughest job I've had to this day. And I think that I wouldn't want it any other way. You know, I think if you start in a, in a tough environment, it's always easier to get easier. Um, so I did, I did that for a year. It's lovely to hear your story, Simon. It, it, a lot of it resonates with me, but that's another conversation for off air. Um, before we go any further, What's your next song and why? My next song, I, I, I fancy a David Bowie song, you know, so I, I don't really mind which one you play, but I'm going to say, I'm going to suggest um, either Ziggy Stardust or Life on Mars. Let's go for Life on Mars, because that's how it feels at the right, moment. So. <laughs> so, Simon, before the break, we were talking about how you ended up in, in journalism, and I, I loved your style. You were there like the little puppy dog next to the journalist, next to the editor in the mobile phone shop's own publication that they'd done because it was cheaper to make their own than pay for advertising. Love that as well. 
Um, but the, what I can't tie together, which I want you to spell out, is how this relates to your martial arts instructor, because you said to me that had you not met him, then you would not have ended up going into journalism. Yeah, I just don't think I, I would have had the confidence to um, perform well in job interviews, uh, and then to even, you know, be able to, to, to interview people. And then, you know, as, as my, my kind of career went on to, to, to manage people, I think, it, um, I think it all goes back to that, really. So in a way, you you mentioned something earlier on about how he would um, sit on the ropes to let the opponent into the ring. Oh. Um, we, you and I have both been in the ring, and I can't imagine doing that. I wouldn't go near the no. opponent's corner. No, no, me neither. You know, unless you had to. They, they might look at you and go, you're taking a mick. So, the, the, yeah. you know... I but I sense there a lot of soft skills that the guy had a lot of soft skills, a lot of emotional intelligence that you also picked up on. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, um, I, I suppose it was, there, there definitely was, and he was the kind of guy who would get a, you know, get a tear in his eye watching uh, Bambi or something, you know, whereas, you know, my dad wouldn't, um, I think he could probably you could probably shoot my old man in the leg and he wouldn't he wouldn't get a tear in his eye, you know. Um I wasn't used to that kind of um yin and yang, if if you like. Okay, so how did your career going back to your career with the mobile phone company, obviously you've got a taste for journalism there. You're enjoying yeah. writing and piecing together stuff. How did it unfold from there? You know, obviously, don't give me the whole story now, but for example, uh, so how did for, you end up in newspapers? So from there, I um, so I did three years uh, on that first one, and then I um, it, it was um, I wanted to. It was a combination of things. I wanted to work in Manchester, and I also um, got sick of working silly hours for very little money you know i was on eight thousand pounds a year and i was working some nights till midnight you know uh so i got fed up of that um so i applied for a job at the big issue in the north in manchester um and that was that that was great that was that was the year 2000 and i worked there for about six years um actually that wasn't on the writing side that was actually on the design side because my my newspaper mentor shirley because we were a, a small team you know she taught me how to use the design package that we used well page layout package was a package called quark express so you know i could do basic things i could draw picture boxes put pictures in draw text boxes you know just really work them like page layout so a good job of big, big issue as a designer, and and then um, the design, the chief designer there, kind of taught me how to be a, a proper magazine designer um, to a standard. Whereby then I was, you know, she left and I became the production manager. So you know, after about five years, so I was I was laying out the whole magazine at one time, including the the, the front covers. But you know, at that point between being twenty and being twenty five, I was also then teaching my own martial arts club as well um and then i was i was in manchester so i was going to more gigs i was i was kind of getting to hang out with some cool people and things like that so 
so that was when it, it kind of um, started coming together for me a little bit. And then I went to work for the um, Manchester Evening News Group. I worked on the Stockport Express. I worked on the Salford Advertiser. 2009, I got made editor of the Salford Advertiser. And then uh, after that, I decided to go and work for some nationals as well. So I did that. I did that for a while. That's great. Um, tell us a little bit about the transition. This is something I'm personally curious about, and, and maybe our listeners or viewers are also curious. The transition between being a writer and being a journalist to being an editor, what has that involved? What are the differences? Um, I think that... Um, I think being, a, being an editor, the way I was taught to, to be an editor was, was kind of... Um, it depends what you're editing, you know. When I was editing the, the Salford Advertiser, it was it, it was mostly like being a, a chief sub editor. Really, you you were coming up with the headlines, you were coming up with the captions, and maybe telling you know telling reporters a little bit about what you wanted. But generally, on a local newspaper, the reporters know what they're doing. The reporters. Um, because everybody is trained as a journalist to write for local newspapers, or they were in those days. Because as I say, that's what you did. You, you did your NCTJ, you did your NCE. So you kind of, the reporters were coming out knowing how to write for a local paper. And it was, editing a local paper was pretty formulaic. You know, you put your best story on the front. And you, the way that you write a news story is, is pretty much right by numbers. It's who, what, why, where, when. There's not really... A great deal of flair to it. Um, whereas now, as ed um, as editor of Northwest Business Insider, there's a lot more creativity in it. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it, it's it's more of a blank canvas in terms of your feature ideas. So maybe we're going to do a feature about artificial intelligence, or we're going to do a, a feature about trade with China. You know, coming up with interesting angles like that, it's a lot more off diary. Um, and so I, I think that when I was editor of the Salford Advertiser 10 years ago, when I was 30, in retrospect, I wasn't ready to be an editor then. Um, mm -hmm. I think I was, when I became editor of Insider um, four years ago, I think I was, I think I was kind of ready. Um, so that was when I was 37-ish. It seems to me, before we go into the next phase of your life, if you like, of becoming an author as well, um, that being an editor as opposed to being a journalist was able to satisfy the curious, Simon, you know, having that blank yes, slate. Yes. As, a, as a journalist, you're like, um, you're a labourer really an intellectual laborer but you're a laborer the editor would know what was going to yeah. go in that magazine or that paper and and you would go and do a good job and if you were lucky they gave you a good story to investigate but as a yeah i mean that's right i mean working on a local paper isn't generally glamorous it's you know it's this lollipop lady's retiring go and go and interview her or you know this this lady's dog's been run over go and interview her you know you know the the, the 
type of thing. So it's, it is very working-like. It's a good place to learn your trade. Um, but it, it's not a place to necessarily learn creativity. And I remember when I was working on The Big Issue, um, the features editor, who was a great writer, said to me that when he's taking on writers, he really hopes that they haven't got an NCTJ <laughs> because he said that, you know, the people who haven't are more creative because they haven't been taught to write like the writing for a local paper. Um, so, 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 but I think what, what you say is right. And I think the, the, the thing that all journalists have is a natural curiosity. And I, and I think that the things that I like, whether it's martial arts, whether it's my family history, whether it's journalism, whether it's the things that I've written books about, it's wanting to know the story. Um, and so often when I go and interview someone, the PR person, you know, let's say I'm, I'm going to go and interview the, the CEO of AJ Bell. The PR person might say to me, can you just give me a list of all the questions you're going to ask him? And I'll say, you'll relate to this. I'll say, I haven't got, I mean, I said I can do that. I can, I can think of some questions and send them to you, but that's not how I work. You know, the way I interview someone is pretty much the way you're interviewing me now, which is I say, so how's this company start? And he tells me, and I go, oh, really? Well, you know, how did that happen? Because I, I don't need to, um, to, to program these questions because it's natural curiosity. It's the way you would talk to somebody in the pub, you know, if you bumped into um, Liam Gallagher in the pub or whoever, and you were able to ask him questions, the questions you would ask him are the questions a journalist would ask him, because you're there when your reader can't be there. So you're asking them the stuff that they want to know. And so I suppose that's been the uh, constant with me, is when I go to interview someone I find all the people I interview interesting because I think everybody has got an interest in life if you get to you know get to what's interesting about them. and I think with martial arts with the um, with the history of it because as, as you can probably tell I'm not a um, you know I've, I've, I've never worked really as um, a bouncer or an assassin or anything like that I'm not a professional beater-upper. Yeah, but then um, again, if, if you were an assassin or a professional beater-upper, you wouldn't be talking about it. I wouldn't tell you, would I? No, that's true. Maybe it's a double bluff, and I am, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but no, I've, I've, I've always been interested in the history of it because I want to know. So, you know, when um, uh, you know, my sensei says to me, oh, this kata was brought to Okinawa by this Chinese master in the 1800s, I'm thinking, well, what Chinese master? Whereabouts in China? What style did he do? Why did he teach it? You know, what did it mean? Why was he teaching it? Why was he teaching it to that guy? You know, and I think that's what that's what I naturally find interesting. And it's it's almost like, um, you know, those those people who are interested in finding out who Jack the Ripper was, or those people who are obsessed with who killed Kennedy and and things like that. It's a, it's because it's not a clear cut history that it's fascinating to, to discover what, what went on. And I think it's like um, people who, who research their own family tree, you know, reading about your own great-great-granddad, 
working at a, a mill or working in the on the docks or working down a mine is always going to be more interesting than reading about somebody else's great great granddad doing that because you've got a connection to it and the martial arts is the same because it's not some random japanese guy it's the guy that taught the guy that taught the guy that taught me so that's really where um where, where i think that curiosity comes from what's your next song and why um i'm gonna do, i'm gonna play some uh modern ones in a minute i think but i'm gonna pick another one that i really i just like the uh the real britishness of this song um and it's up the junction by squeeze i just think it's got that real british kitchen sink drama kind of quality to it and i think it's uh, just a lovely song Welcome back to the culture part the show that celebrates the music, the culture and the people of the world. And if you've just been listening to the news, I hope it was good. I'm not responsible for it. I try not to listen to it these days because it's all doom and gloom. Um, but what isn't doom and gloom is this interview with my guest today, Simon Keegan, who's been filling us in on how his life unfolded and how he ended up being the editor of Business Insider Northwest and having his own uh, Bushinkai uh, Martial Arts Club. Um, fascinating guy. Just before the news, he was explaining um, about the difference between being a journalist and being an editor. And he's talking about his natural curiosity um, for life and how when he could see gaps in his knowledge, he, he wasn't happy just to leave it there. He'd have to dig deeper. Just like that five-year-old kid that you've got that keeps on saying why. Um, and I think Simon, that leads us really to your how you ended up being an author, because I know that you've you've written about karate, you've written about jujitsu and British jujitsu, but you've even written about King Arthur. How did that come about? I mean, how did you even get into things like King Arthur and Camelot? So, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you about them. I suppose about the martial arts side of it first, because that's probably more logical to start with. Um, I mean, I, I started teaching when I was uh, 20 or 21, and I, I never particularly had the desire to, um, to start my own club, but I was looking for somewhere to do some extra practice for, for Tai Chi, actually, and we, we stumbled into this martial arts centre, and we said, we're looking to hire a room to, for a bunch of us to do Tai Chi. And the guy said, oh, I'm looking for new instructors. You know, you want to put a Tai Chi class on here. And at the time, you know, we said, well, we're not really in a position to teach Tai Chi, uh, but we just want to borrow a room. And um, the guy, somebody said, oh, he's a black belt, you know, pointed at me. And, I, and I, the guy kind of eyes lit up, you know, oh, another black belt, you know, come, come and teach. And I said, well, I don't, I'm not really an instructor, you know. Um, so my sensei at the time, uh, Steve, wasn't running his own um, dojo at the time. His dojo had closed down, so I was just training at his house, and a few of his other more kind of hardcore students were training at his house. Um, so I, I went and said to him, I said, Sensei, you know, guys asked me to teach, and he said, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd be honored. So, so I um, started teaching, and, and then it, it's the, um, that, that kind of Spider-Man quote, you know, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. So, so now I'm teaching, I thought, well, 
you know, I, I can't really have any gaps now. I can't really have any things that are vague about the teaching. You know, if somebody says to me, Sensei, where does this kata come from? I'm supposed to come up with a, you know, a decent answer to it. So, so then I really kind of doubled my efforts to understand more about the martial arts that I was doing. Um, and why I wanted to go a little bit into the martial arts more was just to kind of talk a little bit about some of the instructors that, that helped me along the way that I haven't mentioned. Because it would be it would be kind of a miss of me to not mention them. So, um, a guy called Bob Carruthers in Wigan became my mentor in um, Sh well Shultakan, um, but the branch that he'd done he'd studied a branch called Shobukan under a guy called Phil Handyside. So, I trained with Bob for for ten years, and what, what Bob gave me was um, because I was already a a black belt and an instructor when I met Bob. He taught me on that level. He taught me how to be an instructor, how to be a grading examiner, how to deal with the associations and the insurance and the and the backstabbing and the you know he, he kind of taught me how to survive um, almost you know on on a sort of political level. And then he introduced me to his old sensei, which was Phil Handerside. Um now, Phil, I, I wanted to um, talk about Phil a little bit because he's an, he was another person that was a great influence on me. Now, you mentioned it earlier about, you know, being five foot six, but, but having that aura of somebody that's six foot six. Well, the first time I saw Phil Handyside was uh, 2003, I think it was. So I was already, a, you know, a second dam or something like that. And he walked in. And it sent a shiver down the spine of everybody in the room. It was like an actual samurai had just walked in, you know, and he, he kind of had that look about him. He had his uh, long hair in a ponytail, like a, a top knot, like a samurai. He had the, um, the hakama on, which is the sort of long pleated, you know, wide pleated uh, trousers that the samurai wore. And he had a way of speaking that sent that shiver down his spine. And again, only a um, guy of a very slight guy, maybe five seven, something like that. You know, so these guys were, were, were kind of mentors to me. Um, Phil had studied jujitsu originally, like a lot of people. He then studied karate with uh, Japanese Shotokan masters, Kanazawa, Kato, Tomita, Kobara, and then he studied a, um, a Malaysian style called Budokan which was interesting because Budokan was more of a Chinese influence, more of an Okinawan influence, because it was, so it was more circular, more, in, more internal in its movements. So th those were the guys that kind of mentored me. And, you know, I, I kind of I subsequently graded up to uh, sixth down with, with Phil. Um, but I also had a chance to join one of Japan's oldest martial arts organizations, the Kokusai Buduin, which was actually uh, presided over by the hereditary shogun. It was the great-great-grandson of uh, the last Tokugawa shogun. So I joined them as an instructor, and then I joined the uh, Dainippon Butokukai, which was the, the oldest of all the Japanese groups. So 
you know, it was actually the Japanese crown prince and the hereditary shogun that, that was that was kind of signing my my grades and licenses. And and so there I got I got much more exposed to the history again and um, training in other styles as well. I was exposed to styles of karate like dojiru. I was ex- exposed to more jiu-jitsu styles. So I started to, um, to make more detailed notes on the history of karate and the history of jiu-jitsu. So, you know, that, that gradually became uh, the nucleus of my karate books. You've given me an excellent answer, but probably enough for us to go to our next song. So what's okay. your next song going to be and why? I think I'm going to go slightly more modern now and I'm going to pick a song that I um, I always liked when I worked at The Big Issue because it's got the, uh, it mentions The Big Issue in this song so I always liked it and it's Supersonic by Oasis. Welcome back to The Culture Pot, the show that celebrates the music, the culture and the people of the world. And if you have just joined us, please bear in mind it's a recorded show, so don't call in, don't text in, nobody's going to be able to reply. Um, So Simon, for your last answer, um, I think I know where you're going because I was like, what's this got to do with King Arthur? So so really, it was the, the journey of chronicling what you were finding out or documenting what you were finding right. out about karate that gave you almost like a template to work from in terms of a right. massive project like a book. I think that's what you're saying to me, isn't it? It gave you a that's blueprint. Right. Um, but that's right, that's right. Um, and I, and I, I wasn't really planning to, to actually publish it. Uh, it was more for my own notes and maybe stuff to teach my students and so on or you know blogs and things um the king arthur book it was, again it was a it was a childhood interest i uh, i watched um i watched the film excalibur probably in the mid to late 80s or, or um yeah probably mid 80s and i think i must have said to my dad you know was king arthur real and my, my dad maybe told me a little bit and then when, um, when I was a kid, we very rarely did we go abroad on holiday. We went to um, Wales, we went to Cornwall, we went to places like that. And those were the places that were associated with King Arthur. So naturally, you know, if we were in Cornwall, I'd be saying to my mum and dad, can we go to Tintagel Castle? Can we go to um, you know, Dosmary Pool, where he was supposed to have thrown the sword? And, and so... Again, I, I had that natural curiosity then. I started reading um, books about maybe who the historic King Arthur was and, and so on. And so it, it just, you know, my notes got, got together and it, it kind of got to that point. And then in um, about uh, 2013, I was working for the Daily Mirror and a guy that I worked with called John Simcox, who's now um, the editor of another business magazine, uh, he'd, he'd published a book about, I think, I want to say it was about um, the mining strikes. I think his granddad was a miner, and uh, he wrote a book about his granddad's diaries during that time. And I said to him, John, how did you get a book published? And he said to me, uh, it's not that difficult, really. You just need to um, 
maybe contact a publisher by email and just email a, a chapter to them and see if they like it, you know. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds pretty easy. So I, um, I contacted about 10 publishers and none of them got back to me. And so I, I was kind of considering maybe doing like, um, I think they call it vanity publishing, don't they, where you just self-publish it. And, or you, mm -hmm. know, you can do it by, um, I think Amazon do a thing where you can just publish things yourself. So I was going to do it like that. And then um, I think, I, oh, I know what I did. I, I complained on Facebook that I'd, um, um, you know, I'd been rejected by all these publishers. And then a guy I knew from the Daily Mirror offered to put me in touch with his publisher. Now, um, he was actually a guy called Gary Johnson, who was the ex-manager of the Stone Roses. Oh, and wow. He said, yeah, it was when, when the Stone Roses first came out, before they were Manchester, I think they were like, um, you know, goths or New Romantic or something like that. And uh, he, he managed them. Uh, and I did actually, I was I'm pretty friendly with another guy on the Stone Roses actually called Aziz. So I'm going to play a Stone Roses song shortly. Um, but anyway, he put me in touch with his publisher. So it was a lady in Norway. And she was the ex-girlfriend of uh, Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols. And so she's published books about the Stone Roses, the Sex Pistols. You know, she's published books for Debbie Harry and, um, you know, all of these kind of 70s punks. So I'm pitching a book to her about King Arthur. And she said, I've never published anything like that. What makes you think that people would buy your book? And I said, well, I do have a lot of friends who work for newspapers. You know, I work for the Daily Mirror and I've got mates who work for The Sun and I've got mates who work for the Yorkshire Post or whatever it be. But pretty sure they would at least give me a few stories, you know. So she said, okay, sign this contract. So um, I, she sent this contract to me by Facebook Messenger. To this day, I've never had a conversation with her on the phone. Um, and she lives in Norway, so I haven't had a conversation with her in person either. Um, she, she just sent me the contract over Facebook Messenger. I signed it. I sent her the manuscript in Microsoft Word. I came up with a, a front cover. And in a few months, I got the uh, book back from the publishers. And it really didn't seem real until, uh, you know, until I opened the book for the first time. What's your next song? So my next song, I'm going to say, in honour of uh, Aziz Ibrahim and uh, Gary Johnson, I'm going to play I Am the Resurrection by the Stone Roses. And I do not have a Messiah complex. Nobody write in and say uh, he's calling himself the Resurrection. I'm not. I just like the song. Simon, before you played your last song, I Am the Resurrection, um, and the disclaimer, of course, that you're not saying that you are the Messiah or the Resurrection. <laughs> you're um, a very naughty boy. We should have played this one at Easter, then, then we would have needed an even bigger yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, disclaimer. But um, you showed us the front cover of your book. So you found this publisher in Norway, and your book was called Pennine Dragon. But what I wouldn't mind finding out more about was what that journey actually involved. You sort of told us a little bit about it. You told us that as a kid, 
you know, um, when you went to Cornwall or Wales, you'd be thinking about the landmarks of King Arthur, which went over my head, by the way, because I've never really been interested in stuff like that, because I always thought it was a myth. When you yeah. told me that it really is real, according, you know, that, that's grabbed me. So tell me more about that journey of actually writing a book, okay. what you came across. Yeah, so I think most people associate King Arthur with Cornwall. And that's because um, in, in more, not more recent, but in books that came out in medieval times from, you know, from about the, the kind of 14th century onwards, King Arthur was always placed in, in Cornwall or Wales. And, you know, the, the reason for that is because, you know, they are the last kind of kingdoms of the Celts, aren't they? You know, the, the kind of um, Anglo-Saxons, you know, establish what's now England and the, the people with that kind of Celtic heritage, that's where you find them, you know, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall. And so, you know, they, they naturally want Arthur to be from, from those places. So when I, was, uh, when I was researching King Arthur, I didn't really, I love Cornwall, I love Wales, uh, but I didn't really have any particular desire for him to be from there. You know, I, I didn't want to write a book, let's prove he was from Cornwall. What I thought I would do is, well, why not, we, why not start at the beginning, okay? What is the first ever historic reference to King Arthur? Okay. So the earliest reference to King Arthur, and this isn't really uh, in dispute, it's a poem called the Gododin. And this was a poem uh, written by a, a, a bard called uh, uh, Anirin. And it was about a, a battle that took place in Catterick in, York, in Yorkshire. And it basically, um, this battle is talking about this great warrior. And then it just says, you know, he was a, he was a great warrior, but he was no Arthur. So it's a very small reference, but it shows that at that time, the name Arthur was known in the kind of Yorkshire area. So I, I thought, well, you know, make a note of that, earliest reference to Arthur round kind of York. So then the next real reference to Arthur is in a book called the Historia Britannum which, uh, you know, it's a history of Britain, and it's often attributed to a, a monk named Nennius. And this book says that Arthur was the Dukes Bellorum, which means the Duke of Battles, Dukes, D-U-X. So I thought, well, okay, we've got a job title for it. Let's look who used the title Dukes. And the title Dukes was used uh, by the Romans in Britain. And it was a very particular role. And what it was, it was commanding along Hadrian's Wall, which was more or less the northernmost boundary of the Roman Empire. So the Dukes used to be based in York. And they would uh, control legions like the Sixth Legion which went up to, up to and along Hadrian's Wall and all those garrisons. 
And I thought, okay, York, Hadrian's Wall, here we go again. And then you look at the names of some of the battles, and the names of the battles resonate with the names of fortresses along Hadrian's Wall as well. So I made a note of that. And then the next reference to Arthur is the Annales Cambrai, the, the history of Wales. But, but of course, it's the Welsh people, including, you know, living across all of Britain before it was just Wales. And they were given two dates for Arthur, which is uh, 516 AD for, for the Battle of Barden and 539 AD for the Battle of Camelan. Now, Barden is one of the battles that was, that was earlier mentioned in the Historia, so there's, there's kind of two independent references to that. And uh, Camelan, there was actually a fort along Hadrian's Wall called Camelana. So I thought, well, there we go. This, is, this again, is, is worth exploring. We've got the earliest reference to Arthur talks about a battle that took place in Catherine. The Historia gives us these 12 battles, some of which are along Hadrian's Wall, commanded by a guy whose job title commanded out of York. And then there's the, the Annales Cambrai, which talks about Camelan, which is the name of one of the fortresses at Hadrian's Wall. So, so then I thought I would look at it from the point of view of, well, are there any rulers in history called Arthur? And there are, there's quite a few. There's quite a few princes and kings that had a name, something similar to Arthur, whether it be Artorius, whether it be Arthurus. And I found one that lived at precisely the right time to have fought those battles. And his name was Arthurus Apmar. So before we go into a little bit more depth about Arthurius, easier for you to say than me, I think, there. Um, what's your next track? I think I'm going to um, stick with the Manchester theme and I'm going to play a new one. I'm going to play um, uh, the Liam Gallagher song, Once. And I just, um, I just love this song. I love the video with Eric Cantona on it. Not a Man United supporter or anything, but I just think it's a, a fantastic video and a fantastic song. So, Simon, um, I'd stopped you at the point when you'd found Arthurius. I don't, know, I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but so over to you. So I, I kind of looked at the, the, the earliest references and I thought, well, you know what? I'm pretty sure that the earliest references to Arthur are around that area of York up to Hadrian's Wall. And of course, they were so historically significant. You know, there was... There was em the Emperor Constantine was crowned in York. That's how important York was. You know, there was Roman emperors that died in York. Hadrian's Wall and the Antonian Wall were the northernmost boundary of the entire Roman Empire. These were important places. So I found, um, you know, it, it, had the, it was the right place. It was the right time. And then I found a ruler with the right name. So then I started to, I, what I wanted to do in my first book was explore all of the other aspects of the Arthurian legend, maybe things that came along a little bit later, and, and try and understand where they came into the equation. So, for example, uh, Camelot, 
Now, Arthur was not associated with Camelot until uh, much later, but I thought, well, I wonder if there was anywhere called Camelot. And there was. There was two places called uh, Camelodunum in that in the, that kind of dark age, subro in the Roman period. One of them was Colchester, and one of them was in Yorkshire. So uh, the the Romans, um, one of the the kind of minor Roman gods was uh, Camelos. He was the god of light. So that's why uh, Camelodunum was dedicated to Camelos, the, the god of light. And if you um, go from the, the main Roman roads, you go on the Roman road from Manchester to York, you basically go th through near Huddersfield. There's uh, a place called Outlane, and there's a, a little village called Slack. And where Outlane Golf Course is now is where Camelodunum was. And you know this isn't theory. This has been this has been excavated. It was a large Roman amphitheatre, so which existed up until the fifth uh, century. So so now I kind of had my Arthur. I had my Camelot. I had my battle sites. I had the time. I had the place. And I, I thought, you know, this is a pretty strong um, argument for for who for who Arthur was really. And so then I started to look into other aspects of the legend, like Merlin, Guinevere, Lancelot, Galahad, and they all, it all fitted in. It, it all fitted in. So um, I published a book, and um, you know, the Yorkshire newspapers picked up on it, first of all, the uh, Huddersfield Examiner, the Yorkshire uh, Post, and then the BBC picked up on it, and I was on BBC Breakfast, I was on BBC Look North, and it just became um, a real buzz around there. And then um, the site of Camelot was given uh, full protection by the Heritage Organization. I think it's called, um, uh, uh, not English Heritage, but something like that, whoever protects historic places. Yeah. You know, that site was given full protection for the first time ever. So hopefully, you know, archaeologists will find something. Do you know what's really mind-blowing about this? Because um, for anybody who's listening to this on Radio Sangam now, um, let me be clear, Simon doesn't know where Radio Sangam is. He doesn't know where the studio is because with the lockdown, we're doing this via Zoom link. And, you know, Simon, people from around the world listen to Radio Sangam because it's the UK's most followed Asian radio station. but we're based in the, in Huddersfield, so oh, um, right, okay. with, with, yeah, our FM audience are in Huddersfield. So there's going to be a lot of people out there who will be wondering different where can they visit in Huddersfield where they can see stuff relating to King Arthur. So that's a, a really excellent reason yeah. for them to read your book, isn't it? Um, did Absolutely. you did you write a second book on King Arthur? I did. I did really because the first book I felt like um, my first book I, I, I think was spread quite thinly in the sense that I wanted to talk about Arthur, Merlin, Lancelot, Guinevere, Excalibur, you know, the Holy Grail, the Sword and the Stone, the, everything about the Arthurian legend I wanted to cover. With the second book I wanted to tell the story of how Arthur got from 
the historic Arthur to the Arthur of legend. So it's more about, you know, more about his battle campaigns and where exactly they were. Um, more detail on Arthur himself, um, but also more, well, well, how did the legend develop? So the name of the second book is The Lost Book of King Arthur. And the reason why I, I called it that is because um, you remember earlier I, I said that there was um, a book that was written called the Historia, which is attributed to a monk called Nennius. Now, the, the thing which people might not realize is anytime you've got these books from more than a thousand years ago, you know, they weren't printed en masse. You know, it wasn't until Caxton Printing Press and all that that things were mass produced. What happened was a monk hand wrote these things, you know, with a, with a quill. Mm -hmm. And then if you wanted a copy of it, somebody else had to sit there copying it. So, so what, you, what you had was you had manuscript A, manuscript B, manuscript C, and very often manuscript A might not have the front page. Manuscript B might have, you know, have been in a fire. Manuscript C might have the entire left half of it that's been ripped off. So when we talk about um, the Historia, there's a number of different manuscripts, some of which are in the British Museum, um, and some of them, I guess, are elsewhere. And annoyingly, they're attributed to different people. Now, there was an old manuscript of the Historia um, called the, uh, the Chartres Manuscript, which unfortunately got destroyed um, in a fire. I don't know whether it was the, it may have been the Blitz it got destroyed in. And this manuscript was the oldest version of the Historia. And it wasn't attributed to Nennius. It was attributed to a northern uh, prince called um, Run Apurian. Th those who know um, about the Arthurian legend, Urians was one of Arthur's knights. But he was also king of uh, Regged, which is basically the Lake District kind of area. So the north, again. And he was a king of Arthur's. So, the, you know, not only was the Historia this, this historic reference to this Arthur with his, um, his battle sites and so on, but there was also a lost manuscript that was actually attributed to a cousin of the northern Arthur. Uh, but it's, it's not lost in a way that I don't think it can ever be found. And it's not something that I've, I've invented hypothetically. You know, people can Google it. It was a manuscript which only got destroyed around about the Second World War kind of time. Uh, but there are, I think, uh, some, some pictures of it at least. But of course, it's written in Latin. It's been absolutely fascinating this old Simon because until now we've never discussed this. I knew you'd written a book on Pennine Dragon. I used to think there's Simon, journalist, great martial artist. But you know, he's got this crazy thing going on about King Arthur. But <laughs> you, know, <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it's really fascinating stuff. So before we finish, I want another song from you, and then we're gonna talk about what the future holds for Simon Keegan. 
to lead us to the end. So what's your ninth song today? I've always loved uh, the White Stripes and uh, Jack, Jack White. Well, I'll say always, ever since they came out. Um, and I love this song. It's by one of Jack White's other bands, the Raconteurs, and it's called Blue Veins. Uh, great song, and it's also one that appeared in one of my favourite TV shows, which was Peaky Blinders. Simon, thank you very much for coming on the show. We're now in the last section of the interview. Um, this is your opportunity to add anything that you think might be of interest to our audience. I feel as though we've looked at all the different channels that I had in mind. We've looked at how you ended up as a journalist, how you ended up as an author, and how you ended up as a martial artist. And we've talked about some of your books, which is great. So what does the future hold for Simon Keegan? What targets have you got ahead of you? Where are you going to take this journey? I think if you'd have asked me uh, a few months ago, I would have been able to uh, give you a very different answer. But obviously, um, we, we're in lockdown. We don't know when lockdown's going to end. Um, so at the moment, um, you know, for example, in martial arts, I'm not teaching my classes at the moment. I, um, I'm doing a lot of training myself in my back garden. I, I do my katas. I do my conditioning. Um, I every now and again message my students and tell them, "I hope you're doing your kata." Um, and I, but I'm, you know, I'm really fortunate that I've got to spend a lot of time with my kids as well. I've got um, I've got a daughter Poppy who's uh, eleven. I've got a son Eddie who's six. Lovely uh, kids who are really being great about lockdown. They're really um, they haven't complained once. They um, both do martial arts as well. Um, uh, Eddie is, uh, has been doing jiu-jitsu before lockdown um, with a guy in Hyde who's a brilliant jiu-jitsu instructor called Mark Wood. Um, Poppy did do uh, karate for, for a while with a, a, a brilliant karate instructor in Staley Bridge called Julian Malaloo. Uh, but they're stuck with me at the moment, so we're getting on the grass and we're doing a little bit of martial arts. And um, I don't teach kids because I'm I'm not very good at it. I uh, I love the idea of kids doing martial arts, but I'm not the guy. Do not send your kids to me to be taught martial arts. I'm rubbish at it. There are people better suited to teaching kids than me. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to resuming my martial arts classes. Got a great um, bunch of people that I'm teaching in, in Manchester. Um, Work-wise, uh, as you say, I'm Edison Insider. I normally am presenting awards dinners with a thousand people in the room. Now I'm doing calls on Zoom and stuff like that. We're um, we're hoping to be, you know, obviously back in action soon. I think we have been lucky to work with such a fantastic team at Insider. I'm lucky to have a, a boss who's got absolute nerves of steel. Um, you know, if you're going to follow anyone into battle, you would follow her because she's she's really uh, somebody that leads from the front. And, you know, yeah, looking forward to all this business being over with, really, and being able to, to do things um, the, the way we were, I suppose, if, if ever that happens. Um, but how about books, books? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I wrote my two King Arthur books. Um, I wrote my history of karate, uh, which is called Karate Jutsu, available from Amazon. It was available from Waterstones and Smiths, as they all are. I don't know whether um, it's possible at the moment because of lockdown, but you can get them from Amazon, definitely. Um, my fourth book was called Bushido, the history of British Jiu-Jitsu. Um, that is a, a, a sense of coming full circle for me, really, because in writing the history of British Jiu-Jitsu, I was able to talk about my great uncle's training in the 1930s. I was able to talk about my dad's training in the 50s and 60s. Um, I named it Bushido as a tribute to my sensei, my original um, formal sensei, Steve Buller, because his club was called the Bushido Academy. Um, I, you know, was able to really um, pay tribute to a few people that had meant a lot to me. Um, Phil Handyside passed away last year. He was a guy that I, I learned a lot from. And I am I, um, really fortunate to be in touch with Phil's sons. He's got several sons that I speak to. And I, I constantly tell them that I'm going to keep their dad's... Um, I'll play my part anyway. He had a lot of students, not just me. Play my part in keeping his, his memory and his style alive. Um, a guy called Alan Tattersall, who taught me a lot about jiu-jitsu, who passed away a couple of years ago. You know, I was glad to be able to write about him in my book. And also, um, Steve Buller, you know, is um, a guy that's really suffering at the moment. He got Lyme disease. So he's, he's currently uh, completely blind and bed-bound with Lyme disease. Um, so I was able to go and visit him a few months ago before lockdown um, and give him a copy of my book. You know, his, his wife um, was, you know, going to read some of it to him. Um, and, he, you know, I, I, it was a funny thing. I, I took my belt round to him that um, he gave me you know, 20 odd years ago. And I said, Sensei, I just uh, want you to know that I still wear the same belt that you gave me. And he he reached down and he, he felt, you know, my belt. Uh, I wasn't wearing it, obviously, at the time. I was wearing my normal clothes. I don't, I don't go around in a karate suit like a lunatic. Um, you know, I had my belt, I handed it to him and he, he felt it and he said, yeah, he said, God, oh, this feels old, <laughs> you know. It was a little bit more... Um, it still had a little bit more starch in it when he gave it to me. Um, so, you know, my belt's gone, gone a little bit grey and I've gone a little bit grey. Um, but I think that was, that was something nice with the books was that I was able to, um, to pay tribute to some of my earliest influences in the martial arts. And um, maybe I'll write another one. I don't know. Well, Simon, I think it's come to a very natural end, which is beautiful. I think the, the idea that, you know, he gave you the belt and you've given it him back and I, I'm not sure what they can do with Lyme disease, but I do wish him well. Um, I want to thank you very much for giving me this interview today, Simon. Thanks a lot. It's been a privilege. Well, thanks for asking me. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And for listeners on Radio Sangam, thanks very much for tuning into the Culture Pot this week. Um, I will be, again, presenting another interesting guest next week. So until then, you take care of yourselves and take care of each other. <laughs>